for Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose. I'm Ken Bolliou. It has been nearly two years since the Business Roundtable, an association of CEOs for major brands, signed a statement declaring that corporations must act for the benefit of all stakeholders, not just shareholders. Since that historic day, the world has seen a greater number of companies shift from being purely profit-driven to being purpose-driven, and it's easy to see why. Studies show that companies that place purpose at the heart of their organization exhibit higher rates of productivity, growth, and employee retention than those that focus purely on profit. In fact, a recent study by the CEO Investor Forum and Fortuna Advisors found that companies that score high on purpose metrics outperform their low-scoring counterparts on common measures of financial performance, market valuation, and shareholder value creation. To discuss the part, the power of purpose, how to measure it, and the importance of engaging finance, I would like to welcome Brian Tomlinson, Director of Research of the CEO Investor Forum at Chief Executives for Corporate Purpose. Brian, welcome to Beyond Profit. Good to be with you, Ken. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. So, Brian, right off the top, since the Business Roundtable made its big splash a couple of years ago, as I mentioned, um, have you seen a noticeable sea change in terms of how businesses act? Or is there still some lingering apprehension among CEOs in terms of embracing purpose? That's a great question, Ken. And I think one of the interesting things to think about in relation to the Business Roundtable statement is what are its implications? The statement was made with great fanfare, as you say, a couple of years ago and attracted a great deal of attention. But the CEO signatories themselves, I think, have said different things about what it means. So some of the CEOs that we've talked to have said that it's a reflection of existing practice. In a sense, the statement is what we're already doing. Whereas others have seemed to suggest that the statement is more setting out kind of a direction of travel. It's kind of where we're going. So I think the implications of it kind of up for grabs. But I think what certainly has happened in the last couple of years is that the expectations around CEO engagement and the issues on which CEOs are expected to have a voice appear to have adjusted. And now that builds on longer term trends, but also there have been, I think, some very recent changes in, in that space. So, you know, increasingly you see CEOs engaging on um, issues around environmental, social and governance which we usually contract to reference as uh, ESG. We've seen CEOs increasingly engage on issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion and indicating you know, the expectations that they have as corporate managers around running diverse organizations. And more recently, you then had this pressure for CEOs to engage in different ways around public policy, uh, particularly as that you know, relates directly to kind of politics and voting rights. I think that is a kind of substantial change in terms of the expectations on uh, corporate managers. And I think it does relate back to that sort of pro-social stance, which uh, C seemed to outline in the Business Roundtable statement. I think it is, though, worthwhile to talk about some of the notes of skepticism that have been expressed around table um, statement and its implications are. And I wanted to kind of highlight those. And we highlight in the intro to our um, return on purpose um, paper that we produce with um, Fortuna Advisors, which I know we'll talk a little bit about deeper into the presentation. But, you know, there are concerns that if you talk, if corporate managers talk about elevating um, all stakeholders and arguably potentially sort of diminishing the role of um, shareholders, uh, and obviously driving shareholder value has been the is the role of of um, uh, 
listed uh, companies, you know, you may, that may be used as an excuse to potentially sort of undermine shareholder rights, which is, has been a policy objective, certainly, of some leading um, business lobby groups. Um, you know, there's also the concern around, you know, how do you uh, ensure that a broad statement, which is pro-stakeholder, is then matched to corporate behavior? And how do you align those two? Are there any obvious examples of disalignment there? And then other questions, you know, around if you're going to say that you support all stakeholders, actually how credible is that? Because different businesses have different stakeholders who interact with their business in different ways. And actually, you know, thinking about stakeholders really is a kind of prioritization exercise. And so there might be trade-offs. So for instance, something that is good for your consumers might be bad for your workers. And thinking about how those trade-offs might work, I think is is an important element of uh, corporate purpose. So I think overall it's it's in a state of flux, what corporate purpose means. And I think therefore it's critical for companies to say what they think it means for them and to be as specific as they can about that. Because as you said in your introduction, you know, I think there are all sorts of um, ancillary benefits that come from setting out a um, a clear uh, corporate purpose, whether that's in terms of attracting and then retaining talent. Studies that suggest that higher purpose firms outperform our own study, which you know suggests that high purpose firms perform low purpose peers. So lots of benefits, but a debate which is very much ongoing. So Brian, you, you mentioned that corporate purpose is in a state of flux, and I'm curious, you know, has the pandemic made CEOs more aware of purpose, you know, during these times? Has, has it changed as a result of the pandemic? You know, are, are companies being more genuine and authentic with their employees and customers as a result? Well, I think it's certainly elevated some of the issues that underlie co- corporate purpose. So how do we treat our employees? What are our commitments to the communities in which we operate, our broader stakeholders, you know, beyond the shareholders? And I think the pandemic has in many ways uh, set those decisions and those trade-offs into pretty sharp relief. You know, for instance, early in the pandemic, you know, companies had the question as to whether they would continue with their uh, dividend payments and their share repurchase programs at the same time that they were being, that they were expected to you know, furlough or lay off their workers. Because ultimately, you know, if you run a people-centered business that in, involves interacting with the general public, there was no to be done. And and so, you know, you did have companies that continued to do their share repurchases and also furlough their workers. And the question is, you know, is that sort of behavior consistent with, with this kind of corporate purpose approach? It may be for the particular company. It's, I think it's up to the company to indicate what corporate purpose entails. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, the pandemic has this very large, you know, social uh, aspect to it um, and has impacted, you know, American workers very severely in many ways. And so I think it's just elevated the focus on corporate purpose and on corporate behavior. And again, I think it's been incumbent on companies to indicate, you know, what their purpose means and how they are using that purpose to make decisions about how they prioritize their response to the crisis. Did that involve, you know, raising worker pay, improving their benefits, you know, ensuring, you know, more than adequate access to, you know, PPE and so on. And obviously it's been a year in which all of these issues have, you know, gained more prominence and significance and companies, you know, whether they wanted to or not, haven't been able to ignore them. Do you feel that coming out of the pandemic that companies will continue to adhere to their purpose or make more of an effort to be purposeful? Well, I think 
large amounts of the uh, data that we see in lots of the studies indicate that the more purposeful and the more clear they are about their purpose and the more they integrate their purpose into the way that they do business, mm -hmm. the better they do. So I think there are certain you know, advantages to companies to trying to embed corporate purpose in their business. And I think also it then is reflected in a social expectation about the role of corporations in society. Yeah, I think increasingly, you know, consumers want to buy product that they feel relate to their values mm -hmm. and indeed consumer preferences and studies of consumer preferences are indicating that companies have a higher willingness to pay for companies that for products that reflect their values. Right. So for instance, consumers are more willing to pay for sustainability branded products than they are for conventional products. So I think, you know, there are just a, a series of quite conventional, you know, financial reasons for embracing um, corporate purpose. And in addition, you can then you can then also respond to the broader social expectations on corporations by embracing diversity and equity inclusion commitment, by embracing um, commitments towards reducing your environmental impact to ensuring that your business is Paris climate goals aligned. I think there are all sorts of quite conventional financial and also broader kind of social normative pressures, which will keep this very much uh, on the agenda for corporations. So I'd like to switch the focus a little bit, Brian, here and talk about measurement. There has been a lot of debate among ANA members and outside the ANA about how to measure return on purpose or whether, in fact, that purpose can be measured. So I want to start by if you could just talk about some of the ways that companies are measuring purpose. It's a great question, Ken, because I think in many ways, corporate purpose is a multi-stage uh, process for companies to engage with. I think the first is you know, the identification of corporate purpose, what our corporate purpose is. Mm -hmm. And I was actually um, looking at the definition from the British Academy Future of the Corporation program, which uses uh, this great definition of uh, corporate purpose, which says producing profitable solutions for problems of people and planet, not profiting from producing problems for either. Ensuring that your business has a you know, problem-solving output, but which is also, you know, commercially viable and sustainable and that it avoids broad um, social detriment. So yeah, I think each company needs to have a, a strong sense of its purpose and therefore a statement of its purpose. That work is important for, for companies um, to do, but then, you know, you can't just stop there. You know, there are plenty of uh, companies that have very high level, all things to all people, purpose statements, and those are not intrinsically meaningful. The question then is, how do you integrate purpose into your company? And there are a number of different ways, I think, in which companies can do that. One is, and um, we again set out this in our paper, the, the return on purpose. One is um, thinking about how you embed purpose into both a sort of managerial training and induction, which goes on within uh, every firm, to indicate the ways in which purpose is expected to impact decision-making. So it's kind of purpose as teachable moment. Another way is to build, you know, the stakeholder and sort of materiality assessment as an ongoing process into um, the way businesses function to ensure that, you know, companies have a strong sense of who their key stakeholders are and how those stakeholders interact with the commercial objectives of the firm, which then gives you a, a stronger sense of how you prioritize between stakeholders and how those stakeholders 
financial prospects. And that's a multi-year ongoing uh, process that companies that companies should have. And then there's also obviously ensuring that at the top, the very top of the corporation, the board of directors also kind of owns corporate purpose, ensures that in their uh, monitoring of management, they're looking at how corporate purpose is being implemented. So it is a whole firm concept you know, that has to flow from boards to the brands. I think one of the key elements of corporate purpose is that it's not about kind of backslapping camaraderie. It's about sort of clarity of purpose. There are a number of studies that indicate. And then having gone through all of that work and all of those processes in terms of identification, prioritization, and integration, I think you can then, companies then put themselves in a place where they're able to think about what a set of metrics might be to pick up some of the key um, attributes and outputs of their corporate purpose. Now, those will depend largely, I think, on the type of sector in which a company exists. You know, we in relation to ESG, we talk about how the materiality or, or priority of an ESG issue will vary systematically by sector, right? So the ESG issues of a Exxon are systematically different to the ESG issues of a Facebook, and that makes a lot of intuitive sense. Now, I think in terms of the output on corporate purpose, there might be many which are not sector-specific. Every firm ought to have them, but key ones are likely to be quite sector-specific. And there are a few ones that I think are, are really interesting. So, you know, for instance, corporate purpose has said, many corporate purpose statements talk about the importance of being an inclusive company. Now, how do you identify that you're an inclusive company? One of the ways that you can do that is by talking about your diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. So that would be setting diversity targets, identifying that you're meeting those targets, and also disclosing progress on those targets. And this has been a focus for institutional investors talking to their portfolio companies to get them to disclose, for instance, workforce composition data that's set out on Form EEO1. That's disclosed to the Department of Labor, but it hasn't been disclosed publicly. And many institutional investors are asking their portfolio companies to disclose that information. So that's quite a practical way of indicating how you know your commitment to being an inclusive company is being lived out in, in real time by setting targets and being transparent. You know, another might be, you know, as companies set out more pro-social goals, they might disclose their stance in relation to paying their fair share of tax. This is, again, something that several institutional investors have started to approach companies about. Another issue might be, given the centrality and systemic importance of climate change, again, an issue that varies with materiality by sector, but is systemically an issue for every company. Companies may want to indicate that they are that they have you know, goals to reduce their environmental impact and indicate where those goals come from. So I think just sort of three examples across DEI, tax, and, and, and climate that companies can, can use to think about how they demonstrate that they are living their purpose. But again, as we talked about, Ken, it's an incredibly broad set of potential metrics right. that companies can use to think about their corporate purpose. But the great thing about the way this space has developed is that there are lots of frameworks that companies can reach for when they're thinking about uh, purpose metrics, you know, whether or not that's investor-facing metrics on ESG like SASB or more stakeholder-focused metrics set out in a framework like GRI, uh, among others. So there's a big infrastructure that corporations can reach in to think about the appropriate metrics for demonstrating that they're a purposeful company. 
Brian, you've mentioned a few times through the course of our conversation about the importance of measuring against DNI efforts. Is that becoming more common, or do you feel like corporations still have a way to go in, in that respect? I think it's both. You know, we've seen um, a substantial increase in the number of companies that are disclosing more information around their DEI efforts. There are more companies that are setting targets on achieving particular DEI um, outcomes, whether mm-hmm. or not that's um, at the board level or whether or not that's throughout the firm or in terms of hiring practices. So uh, I think in the usual way in this space, it's lots more activity, but lots more progress to be made. You've argued in articles and elsewhere that companies must engage the finance organization when it comes to the purpose initiatives. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. And I think this is an absolutely critical issue, Ken. Thanks for raising it. Because this is something that we talk about in terms of ESG issues as well. You know, ultimately, for corporations to make progress on issues, they have to often apply capital towards them. And you have to demonstrate a business case for the activities that you're undertaking and the investments you're making. And so therefore, it's really important to bring along the finance function, to integrate the finance function into these decisions, to ensure that the basis on which these investments are being made are being understood and that investments can be made at the uh, appropriate level. Because ultimately, you know, stakeholder capital is a complex and is a complex exercise that involves a lot of prioritization and a lot of trade-offs, a lot of competing claims. And therefore, you know, the finance function has to understand the basis on which investment decisions are being made and to be able to also understand the benefits of the investments made. I mean, for instance, in the, in the um, ESG space, as companies get started with their ESG uh, programs, not as a silo, but as integrated into you know strategy and, and the core business mm-hmm. there are often quite simple cost avoidance benefits for mm-hmm. making ESG investments whether or not that's you know reducing your long-term um, energy costs uh, reducing certain input costs because you're you know reducing the carbon intensity of the energy or reducing the amount of inputs you need to make a particular product or reducing the amount of water you use in an industrial process. So there are these quite simple conventional cost avoidance benefits. And so it's important that the finance function understands those and is able to account for those. And critically then, through the CFO and the investor relations officer to then talk to the capital markets about the benefits of the initiatives that companies are are taking. So it's critical, you know, the power of the person is important. So, you know, engage the finance function in order to make progress and as a critical element in getting broader C-suite buy-in. Uh, Brian, you mentioned your study a couple of times, the return on purpose. Fantastic study. It found that high-purpose companies see better returns and higher valuations than low-purpose companies. Can you just talk about some of the brand attributes and measures that you used to score companies on the purpose spectrum? Yes, so we used um, the purpose framework uh, provided by um, Bearer Brand Management, uh, a great firm, and they created their purpose framework um, has 13 different attributes of consumer perceptions of brands. And these are a mixture of different perceptions, whether or not it's seeing the brand as having particular beliefs and values, regarding the brand as being inclusive, having strong um, uh, social commitment, cultural relevance, uh, humanitarian, highly innovative, and those, the, the 13 elements are set out in the, um, in the report. And we then, um, div- having gone through 
large universe of uh, listed companies, we, on the basis of those consumer perceptions of the brand attributes of the companies we analyzed, we separated them into um, high-purpose firms and low-purpose firms and looked at their um, performance across a range of different financial and valuation metrics. And it was uh, very interesting what we found, because we found that the high-purpose firms had significantly higher return on capital and valuation multiples than their low-purpose peers. And as you would expect from those two first attributes, significantly higher, uh, 20% total shareholder mm-hmm. return. So real benefits to being perceived as a high-purpose company. And the interesting thing, you know, we talked a lot on this call about how the pandemic may have accelerated some of these underlying trends and expectations for companies to be more pro-social, to do no harm, uh, to have a strong sense of purpose and so on. And we saw that during the pandemic, the relationship or between the high-purpose and the low-purpose brands actually intensified with the uh, higher-purpose brands doing some sort of even better over the period of over the, over the period of, of the pandemic, which mm-hmm. is super interesting. I'd like to ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, Brian. Um, do you believe CEOs yeah. should be measured and incentivized based on purpose-centric metrics? That's a great question, Ken. I mean, I think CEO pay a massively complicated area, and I think as there are as soon as you start to embed new metrics into how you incentivize the CEO, there is always the possibility of unintended consequences. So I think, you know, as, and this is a very emerging area. So, and of course the danger, if you choose the wrong set of metrics, you may contribute to a pattern that has often been the case in executive pay of untethering a pay from underlying performance. So I'm not in principle opposed to thinking about how, you know, corporate purpose and executive pay interact. It makes sense that they they should, but I think it's important to proceed with care in what is an extremely complicated area. So we have seen adaptations in the way in which some CEOs are paid with certain, in inverted commas, ESG metrics being incorporated into CEO pay. So, you know, an example of that might be meeting specific diversity equity and inclusion objectives over a certain time horizon. Again, those may be fine, but those may may also have, and and it's good to incentivize those at the CEO level, but also those may have the effect of enabling CEO pay to perhaps continue to rise or not reflect underlying poor financial performance. So I think it's a complicated area and one that requires a lot more work, but ultimately one pay for performance, uh, but you want a broad sense of what performance means. And I think what we're all trying to wrestle with is, you know, what is the, what is the blend when we think about firm performance between, you know, financial outputs and other social outputs. So it is a, it is a complex balancing act. Lastly, Brian, you know, as we talked about, it's pretty clear that, you know, companies have made some serious inroads on the purpose front, but where are they still falling short? What is your research telling you? That's a great question, Ken. I think there are a couple of areas. I think the one that I would really focus on here is, is alignment, and that is the alignment between firm statements 
on pro-social values being purposeful and then the activities that actually underlie. Because there's always a concern that, you know, a company will set out a pro-social stance, but then will actually be doing something which is contradictory to that pro-social stance. You know, a couple of examples there would be, you know, companies that have made either strong statements about their commitment to the environment or have uh, committed to achieve certain very specific GHG reduction goals, but then at the same time are lobbying against environmental regulations or are supporting um, corporate lobby groups, which are themselves lobbying against uh, taking environmental action. So there's just that, that concern about inconsistency. Mm-hmm. And you've seen again in the area of voting rights recently, you know, you've had statements of support by CEOs and board members reproduced in several leading newspapers are talking about support for voting generally, but then, you know, some of the member firms of those CEOs and board members are then members of corporate lobby groups which are opposed to very specific uh, pieces of um, legislation to support fair voting in the United States that are currently going through Congress. So I think that's a key issue for companies to try to get their head around, which is what is the actual relationship between the broad public statements and then the highly consequential for the behind-the-scenes lobbying activity. And, you know, ultimately that's a governance issue and that's something that boards of directors need to need to understand and engage with to ensure that companies aren't exposing themselves to reasonable accusations of hypocrisy. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining me in Beyond Profit and for sharing your perspective and insights. I, I truly enjoyed it. Great to be with you, Ken. Thanks for having me. To learn more about the CEO Investor Forum and Chief Executives for Corporate Purpose, please visit cecp.co. That's cecp.co. Until next time, thanks for listening.